Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's no magic bullet to restore access to abortion in the United States. Those words came from Secretary Xavier Becerra in late June, the head of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the same agency President Biden has tasked with finding ways to protect access to abortion and making sure pregnant patients get emergency reproductive care no matter where they live. Today, where we live, we talk to doctors providing reproductive care in Texas and North Carolina. We also talk to providers here at home. Coming up, we hear from Dr. Kate Pascucci from Connecticut Women OBGYN and Dr. Amanda Callen, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. What questions do you have about the future of reproductive care in the U.S.? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook, search where we live. My first guest on the show joining us on Zoom is Dr. Jesse Munoz, a maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in Texas. Dr. Munoz, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, you practice high-risk maternal care, and so I'm wondering if you can talk through with us when patients arrive in your office, um, you know, normally the kind of care that you're providing. Yeah, so I am a high-risk specialist, also known as a perinatologist, and about one in three women will ultimately uh, end up in the care of a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Uh, so many of my patients have already been seen by their obstetrician and identified to be high risk either for maternal conditions, fetal conditions, or conditions that are particular to the pregnancy. So it could either be, you know, mom is very sick, the baby has a fetal anomaly, or the pregnancy is more complicated, such as twins, triplets, or problems with the placenta. And so they're usually um, much further along in pregnancy by the time they come see you? Yeah, on average, by the time they come see me, they're probably about uh, anywhere between 15 to 20 weeks. We do do a screening ultrasound for all pregnant women between 18 to 20 weeks. Um, So many women come during that time. I'd mentioned that you practice in Texas, and we know about Texas's law that was uh, enacted in September of last year uh, that um, would ban abortions past six weeks. And so when that law went into effect, and I know with all of the different court rulings and now the Supreme Court ruling, I wonder if you can talk about you know the conversations that you may have had with patients or even colleagues about uh, um, the, the, the moment that we're in. Yeah, ever since the passage of SB8, it's been a wild ride. Um, And it's been a wild ride in all aspects of the care that we provide. You know, a lot of my uh, care provided is in the office as a consultant. And so I do have a number of patients that will come to me, as I mentioned, either with like a maternal high-risk condition, such as a cardiac condition or, you know, stages of cancer. Um, 
And then other times they come for screening ultrasound, which we do for all pregnant women. And we find something, we find an, a brain anomaly, a cardiac anomaly, a missing portion of the fetus, for example. And so, you know, those conversations have obviously changed in the last nine months since, you know, my job, and I always tell patients, you know, my job as high risk OB is to provide the risk profiles for all the viable alternatives and then allow you to decide what's most appropriate and what risk you're willing to take. And so the first barrier that I find is, is right there. I can't really discuss all of the risks or all of the options as, you know, termination of pregnancy would not be an option within our state. And our state is so large, you could drive for 14 hours and still be in the same state. So referring a patient outside of the institution is also very difficult, especially since patients have probably already driven two or three hours to come and see a high-risk specialist. So that definitely does impact the office care. And then, you know, we do work on labor and delivery as well. And one of the best parts of my job is just that you never know it's going to come to the door. And labor delivery is always a very exciting place to be. But, you know, the more recent environment has more of fear. You don't know what's going to come through the door. And, you know, what, you know, 18-week massive bleeding patients are going to come through or how sick are they going to be? And you don't know what's coming through. So talking to colleagues and experiencing it myself, there's been a lot of um, fear as approach to things and a lot of second guessing, um, trying to protect yourself, but also provide the best care that you can. When you say um, having to second guessing and, and having to protect yourself, so you're referring to, I believe, this other law, this trigger ban uh, that was passed in Texas that would create harsh penalties for providers and doctors for performing or aiding abortions at any stage of pregnancy. Correct. Yeah, especially that aiding part. So like the verbiage for the aiding and abetting is it's very broad. And so when that first was enacted, uh, we had a, a meeting within our group. And, you know, we we're like, you know, you have to be careful. Like there, we do have partners in the room with them and the partner could be recording any part of this conversation where you could be telling the patient, you know, there is an option for termination in a nearby state that would be considered aiding and abetting. Mm. Wow, that puts you and your colleagues in, in a really hard place when you think about why you entered medicine uh, to help uh, your patients uh, get the best care and to feel that you are hamstrung and could face legal penalties. That must be really frightening, too. You know, I chose to go into OB because it was supposed to be the happiest field. It's the only place in the hospital where patients are happy to be there in the hospital. And now it's become quite terrifying. Mm. Again, you can join us as we talk to OBGYNs this hour. Uh, my first guest, Dr. Jesse Munoz, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist who practices in Texas. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Munoz, for, for your patients uh, who decide that um, they, they want an abortion, what does that mean for them in the state of Texas? As you mentioned, they would have to travel out of state and, you know, the difficulty of that because of uh, so many different factors. There's so many barriers. We have included so many unnecessary barriers for women to access care that it's just become ridiculous. You know, as a consultant, you know, we are the only academic maternal fetal medicine group for a very wide range. And I mean, you know, seven hours west, there's still nobody else. So we have patients that travel to many hours to come see us. And then once we give them the consult and their options, you know, then they may need to travel an additional five, 10, 12 hours to another state 
um, to get care if they can even arrange it in another institution. Um, and it would be across states. So obviously, there's no insurance coverage out of it because it's not their home state. Um, so the costs start to pile up on patients that already you know are set behind. You know, may not, especially in the setting of the pandemic, may not have a, a two, three thousand dollars lying around um, to go seek their care. I wanted to bring in another uh, doctor uh, into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Kate Pascucci is a doctor here in our state with Connecticut Women OBGYN. Dr. Pascucci, welcome back to our show. Hi. Now, we talked with you uh, right after uh, the uh, opinion from the Supreme Court uh, was leaked uh, in May, and we talked uh, through some of your thoughts. Uh, as you hear a colleague in another state uh, who is dealing with uh, what the, the laws mean in terms of how he and his colleagues can provide care, how do you respond? I mean, I can't imagine the barriers that people are facing in that especially like in um, Dr. Munoz talked about how large of an area Texas is. I mean, that provides so many issues for women and for doctors um, who are trying to provide good care to people. Um, I can't imagine the confusion probably in some of the um, units and some of the offices on what exactly the laws are. There's a lot of talk like, um, through um, Facebook groups of OBGYN doctors in states with trigger laws and about like what exactly is allowed and what isn't allowed. And people are confused and they want to provide really good care for women. I think a barrier to care is understanding exactly. I mean, the laws in and of themselves are problems, but then like trying to understand what exactly are the laws, what you like, sometimes, you know, you do the, if you do the right thing, are you going to, face legal ramifications for that. I mean, I can't, these kinds of things are things that I think would really um, provide me with a lot of anxiety. Hmm. Uh, you also uh, provide abortion care uh, to those patients who, who make that decision in our state. Can you talk about um, how you approach these conversations? And you know, since uh, this ruling came down, you know, some of the concerns that you may have heard. Sure. Um, I, you know, when, well, when patients come in and, you know, it's usually that, you know, they're, you know, we talk through the options, um, you know, we're able to get ultrasounds, figure out <clears throat> how far along people are, how, you know, um, and we're able to support them in whatever decision they make. Um, people are concerned now um, about the future. And if I think people are like, better get, people come in and be like, better get my IUD now, you know, better, you know, you know, figure out what I want to do for birth control in the long term. People are nervous that this is only, the, I think in Connecticut, people are nervous that this is only the start of, you know, picking through um, reproductive um, care and trying to regulate, you know, birth control and everything else. Um, so I think people are becoming very fearful that they won't be able to um, dictate their own fertility in the future, mm -hmm. even in our state. 
And thinking about the the uh, implications, the ramifications on people who want to see, uh, you know, their pregnancy uh, for full term, and if there are complications, uh, what that would mean for them in another state. Um, I mean, it's, depending it's, on it's, the law. Right. I mean, and it's you know, and there are many people who have very wanted pregnancies, who, you know, end up having to terminate for their own health or for the well-being of their family. It's just not right for them to have uh, either, you know, to carry a, I mean, I'm sure Dr. Minos sees a lot of, you know, carry a baby to term and then only to know that the baby's going to die within a few hours or days. I mean, there's a lot of implications to these laws. Like if you're going to, if you're not going to be in Connecticut for a long time, what's going to happen if you have an anatomy scan in a state like, you know, like there's a lot of anxiety around how you can get care and what, when the ball is going to drop, is there, are they, you know, people are wondering, can, are, is Connecticut truly protected? You know, what's coming down the line for women? It, it's, it is on a lot of people's minds here. Uh, Dr. Beverly Gray is an OBGYN based in North Carolina. She's also with us here on Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Gray, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Uh, you're in North Carolina, as I mentioned. So what does that mean in terms of the laws in your state? So right now, there have been no immediate changes in the law um, with the Dobbs ruling. Um, we have a law that's currently enjoined uh, that's a 20-week ban um, that may change in the coming months. Um, but currently, we're able to provide um, comprehensive abortion care for our patients seeking it. You mentioned that 20-week ban. I understand that you and some others um, were enjoined in action against the state regarding that ban. Can you tell us more? Yeah, that's correct. So our previous law had a very narrow exception for um, cases between 20 weeks and viability. And so these are exactly the cases that Dr. Munoz was talking about, where someone comes in with a severe medical complication or illness and they're unable to um, receive care or you have to have multiple experts you're involving lawyers and you're you're hindered and being able to do the right thing to save the person's life and so you know we had many examples of cases where you know how sick does someone have to be before you care for them um do they need to be in multiple organ failure or is kidney failure enough or if they're you know so there are these very gray areas where you know people who are trying to one obey the law but also do the right thing um can be you know confused um and so by by suing the state of north carolina our goal was to have clarity around that that you know, Roe allowed for care through viability, and we felt that that was the right thing to do for people in our state. Now, looking at into the future and the politics in North Carolina, um, how concerned are you about these laws becoming more restrictive? Incredibly concerned. So right now we have a governor who stands up for reproductive health rights, which is awesome. He vetoes everything all, all the restrictions that come across his desk. And right now there is no supermajority in the, the state House and Senate that would override these bills, but it's a very, very narrow margin. And so the elections in November are extremely important in our state for maintaining 
access to safe legal care. Um, if that if they have a supermajority in the in the House or Senate, um, those bills could be vetoed and and restrictive legislation could be pushed through as early as the spring. And so I would say that that folks in our state are very very concerned about that. What are you hearing from your patients, Dr. Gray? So, um, you know, I, I also see patients who are more concerned about having more effective um, contraceptive methods. So we're definitely seeing that, um, you know, we're, we're booked out, you know, as further than we've ever been in our family planning clinic uh, for contraception. Um, you know, the other thing that's been really lovely to see is that patients are so appreciative when they're seeking abortion care with us. Um, just that we're there providing the care. They recognize that um, this right is tenuous right now in our country, and they're just just so grateful. Dr. Munoz, uh, I'm wondering if you could respond to what uh, your colleagues in, in other states have shared with us. I definitely, you know, I feel their sentiments. And it, it's true that we, we go through just this interesting experience of the barriers that we're trying to provide patient care. And, you know, know, Dr. Pescucci did mention that there are patients now that have fetal anomalies that we know are not compatible with life. And, you know, I've never had to, you know, manage a pregnancy through this, knowing that there's significant either like missing part of the fetal skull, you know, and the, the, what the patients are going through, you know, and it's, it's such a very difficult experience to, go through patients with this um, experience because it's just different. And, you know, as Dr. Gray mentioned, I, even in my training for maternal fetal medicine and high risk OB, nobody ever told me what sick enough means. You know, she mentioned is this kidney failure enough? That's just a ridiculous question that we're asking ourselves. You know, why do I have to ask, you know, do you have three organs shutting down or two before we can provide you adequate care? (laughs) That should just not be a question. No. And when we think about even the maternal mortality rates increasing in our country, I mean, Texas alone, this has been a huge concern. And now what do we know about since this, these laws have passed, you know, how that's impacting mothers, Dr. Munoz? Yeah, an interesting study just came out last week uh, by Dr. Nelson and his colleagues over in Dallas that showed since uh, SB was implemented, their maternal morbidity rate has doubled for that age range of the 2018 and above. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Dr. Gray, uh, I'm wondering if you could respond when you, when you hear that, that, that really troubling study. Yeah, I mean, we're living in a maternal health crisis in our country right now. And we know that folks seeking abortion care tend to have higher risks to their health and pregnancies anyway. And so, you know, the question is, these folks will be forced to continue their pregnancies. We're going to need more high-risk doctors like Dr. Munoz to care for them. We're going to need more OB providers. We're already, you know, in our state, you know, we're a very rural state, North Carolina. Um, We're already seeing, you know, hospitals shutting down their obstetric services. So patients are having to travel further for care. Um, there are just so many domino effects of, of cutting off access to abortion care that impacts families, that impacts people's work, that impacts, you know, their chances of surviving their pregnancy. And so forcing pregnancy 
puts people's lives at risk. Again, that's Dr. Beverly Gray, Associate Professor at Duke Obstetrics and Gynecology in North Carolina, as we talk with OBGYNs today about their expectations and their fears in a post-Roe world. With us from Texas is Dr. Jessica Munoz, Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist, and we heard from Dr. Kate Pascucci, who's with us from Connecticut OBGYN. After a short break, we're going to talk with an infertility specialist, Dr. Amanda Callen. Now, what questions do you have about the future of reproductive care? You can join us. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook. Search where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the future of reproductive health care in the U.S. with four OBGYNs from our state, Texas, and North Carolina after the reversal of Roe v. Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now this week, Connecticut's U.S. Senators Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy announced they're co-sponsoring the Freedom to Travel for Health Care Act, which will protect the rights of Americans to cross state lines to receive abortion care. Now the Roe reversal has wide implications also on patients trying to get pregnant through IVF. To explain, joining us now is Dr. Amanda Callen, who's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Callen, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I mentioned you specialize in infertility. So post-Roe, how are the conversations with your patients changing? Um, I think, so what we're seeing from our infertility patients is people are very scared about um, how access to fertility treatment is going to change and how um, how decisions about what to do with um, embryos are going to change. Um, I think some of the concerns are, you know, for people who already have embryos frozen um, from IVF that maybe are excess or um, are abnormal or not, you know, um, would not... Um, make a, a healthy pregnancy in the future, um, people are worried about what they're going to do with those embryos because the way that some of these laws are are written, you know, as personhood laws, um, 
there's a very real possibility that people won't necessarily be able to discard those embryos um, right now. In Connecticut, people have the option to discard extra embryos um, or to make decisions with them based on what, what their family goals are. Um, so patients are moving embryos around to different states. Um, you know, people are going to, I think, start making decisions about um, how many eggs they can they can get out of a cycle because they don't want to have extra embryos. That's going to increase cost. Um, and so people are, are very, very worried um, about, you know, how this changes their fertility options. Hmm. Now, in Connecticut, uh, people are, would you say patients, uh, you know, have... Um, better ease of mind uh, versus thinking about these states that are, you know, banning abortion and, you know, requiring that, you know, procedures um, must not be done unless there's no fetal heartbeat. I wonder if you can talk more about that, Dr. Callen. Yeah, I think um, people feel a little more at ease right now, but I I think, um, I, I don't think we can feel at ease. I think, you know, a few years ago, we would have said Roe is not going to fall and, and Roe has fallen. And so I think it's a mistake to think that um, Connecticut is safe. I think we are lucky right now because we have, um, you know, legislators who are supportive of the full spectrum of reproductive rights, but that could change. And, and we've seen how that's changed in, in terms of Roe. So um, I think people are right to be nervous and, and scared. Uh, we've done shows before on IVF uh, and how it's complicated and, you know, it can be quite a roller coaster for families. Uh, when we think even about um, some of uh, the complications that may arise, uh, even uh, once a patient uh, becomes pregnant in this way and, and how you're able to treat them, that must concern you, Dr. Callen. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, you know, I have patients who have, you know, and again, I think as, as, um, Dr. Gray and Dr. Pascucci commented on, you know, these are these are very wanted pregnancies. Um, and, you know, I've had patients who have had devastating, you know, fetal anomalies, problems with the pregnancy, where, where that pregnancy, that baby is not going to survive. And, you know, patients and families are making very, very difficult decisions about um, ending those pregnancies so they can try again for a, for a healthy baby and you know, I'm, I'm thinking of patients who would just be absolutely devastated to have to carry a pregnancy to term that would not survive. It's a devastating decision, no matter what they do. And then, um, you know, I think about my patients with ectopic pregnancies. So, you know, when someone has IVF, um, they have a slightly higher risk of an ectopic pregnancy for some different reasons. An ectopic pregnancy is implanted outside the uterus and you know, fortunately, this isn't something we're dealing with in Connecticut right now, but these are real conversations happening about, can I treat an ectopic pregnancy? You know, um, if there's a heartbeat in the tube, we know that that pregnancy is going to not survive and kill the mother if it is allowed to continue. But how do we treat those pregnancies? So, um, you know, right now, the, the way that the bills are worded you know, people are talking about having to ask their legal department if they can treat an ectopic pregnancy. These are situations that are life or death. You you might have minutes to make a decision if someone's bleeding from an ectopic. And so, um, you know, they're just absolutely terrifying situations. And, and it, 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 it makes, my, makes me sick to think about um, 
putting someone who is already in a difficult situation, already experiencing infertility, um, or just an unwanted pregnancy and, and adding these layers of complexity to these decisions. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook, search uh, Where We Live. We have other OBGYNs with us this hour, including Dr. Jesse Munoz, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in Texas. Dr. Munoz, we heard from Dr. Callen about you know the, the, the questions for those who are uh, undergoing IVF uh, treatment, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that from the Texas perspective, these questions that are raised about how um, to handle when there are complications what will happen with frozen embryos? Yeah, it's such a difficult situation. And, you know, I'm first off, I'm extremely grateful to have colleagues like Dr. Callen, you know, who do help a lot of these patients through their infertility. Uh, and many of these patients end up um, becoming patients of maternal fetal medicine. So we work very closely. Um, and there are a lot of questions, you know, where does, you know, where does this begin? And she also mentioned, you know, ectopic pregnancies and, you know, how do we manage an ectopic pregnancy that has a heartbeat? It's possibly in her fallopian tube, which is connected to her blood vessels of her body. And, you know, currently do we let it grow until the blood vessels burst? And in pregnancy, you know, the uterus can get up to half a liter of blood per minute. So the bleeding is not slow. It's very brisk bleeding, a very life-threatening bleeding. And these are situations, again, that we, when we did our training, this was never a question. You know, these shouldn't be questions we're having today. We know what the answer is. The answer is if we don't treat this, she's going to have life-threatening bleeding. But how far, now the question is, how far do we let it go? What do we have to wait? How much bleeding is life-threatening? And these are questions that we should not be having to do. But unfortunately, this is where we are. Uh, Dr. Kate Pascucci is also with us from Connecticut, OBGYN. Uh, Dr. Pascucci, when we think even about um, the care in some states for these women who may be going through miscarriage and what that would mean for later-term miscarriage, I wonder if you can respond to that. I think that it is an abomination that like these questions are even having to be asked. It just really confirms that, I mean, I, I'm not really sure like what the point of, you know, wondering if you can treat an ectopic or wondering a, a miscarriage, like we, you know, the medical term for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. I mean, it, you know, I think that there's some confusion by the people that are making laws as to what um, a pregnancy is or what a life is. I mean, so we're basically putting the mother, you know, but I'm not, there's no end point to an ectopic pregnancy other than, you know, treating the pregnancy so that the woman can continue to live. And if you don't do that, the woman dies. I mean, it's not, there should be, again, I, you know, echo the thoughts of Dr. Munoz and Dr. Cowan. Like it should not be, this is not a question. Mm -hmm. um, and these women, many times ectopic pregnancies, miscarriage, I mean, it's devastating for them. And now we're questioning how to treat it and making it so much more difficult for them. And I think the problem is, is that people that are making laws really don't understand at all what we do and what we're faced with every day and what women are faced with with their reproductive care. And, you know, we're not talking with their, you know, even if people are saying, oh, it's not like pro-life, it's pro-birth, but like a dictopic pregnancy is not even pro-anything. It's just silly to even consider having to, to face these um, 
decisions. I hope that in Connecticut, we will be able to continue to provide. I mean, that's not even good medical care. That's just being a, you know, that's just, it's a like not even a thing. I mean, it's not even a question in my mind what we have to do for these patients. And I just can't even imagine being a doctor and, and be, and going into this field, trying to take care of women and wondering, am I going to get like arrested for like doing my job? I mean, it's, I, I feel very, I, I feel like it's insane. Dr. Beverly Gray is with us from North Carolina. I wonder if you can respond to Dr. Pascucci and, and the others about, you know, this idea that, you know, you're really there to offer standard of care and now to have to uh, think about all these scenarios and, and how it's such a disservice uh, to the people that you're, that, you're, that you're trying to help. I think it's incredibly important as medical providers that we have clarity, that we can speak with clarity around the differences between ectopic pregnancy and abortion. Seeking abortion care is ending a pregnancy that's implanted in the uterus, that's implanted in the normal place. Um, treating an ectopic pregnancy, the treatment is different. In my mind, it is completely different than abortion care. And I think as providers, we need to speak out with clarity about the differences because if you have a patient with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy and you're on the phone with your lawyer, to me, that's malpractice. Like you should be able to make decisions in the moment that save lives. And we know that in this country, the most common cause of death in the first trimester is either unrecognized or delayed treatment of an ectopic pregnancy. And like Dr. Amunia said, this is, the uterus is an amazing organ and has a, you know, an, a blood supply during pregnancy that is impressive. Um, and so if you have a ruptured pregnancy that's implanted not where it's supposed to be, you may have minutes um, of decision-making if that patient presents to you after their pregnancy is already ruptured. And, and as an OBGYN that provides comprehensive care, I care for people that have ectopic pregnancies, who are seeking abortion care, who are seeking obstetric care. And I, d I think the laws that are being put in place um, should not be clouding medical judgment, should not be forcing physicians to, to commit malpractice. Which, in my opinion, if you delay care of an of a known diagnosed ectopic pregnancy, that is malpractice. Today, where we live, we're talking with OBGYNs in our state, as well as in Texas and North Carolina. After the Supreme Court a ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, you can join us with a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook, search Where We Live. Dr. Munez, who is practicing in Texas, I understand you're, you're fairly early in your profession as an OBGYN. What does this mean for you in your professional trajectory? Is this something that uh, obviously you weren't expecting this? <laughs> None of us were, um, um, maybe some were, but in terms of your your career and wanting to help uh, your patients, I mean, how does this impact uh, you know your future plans? Yeah, this is just has a profound impact on you know just the care that I can provide, but also the training throughout the years. And it makes you really reflect about the training of our future physicians. I'm currently three years out, so I am considered junior in, in this field. But you know, the training that I received just three years ago 
is not going to be what our current OB residents receive and you know how we teach them to take care for patients and evidence-based care if that is completely disrupted now and it's like this the scramble like how do we prepare for the future i really you know i definitely fear for our patients today but have a looming fear for the ones coming in the future um, as training is going to be significantly impacted well, what's your take? I understand there was clarifying guidance uh, announced uh, by the Biden administration earlier this week. I'm, I'm quoting uh, CNN here now that um, the federal law preempts state abortion bans when emergency care is needed and that the federal government can penalize institutions or providers that fail to provide abortions as needed to treat medical emergencies. Uh, does that um, give you any ease of mind, Dr. Munoz? It really doesn't. It just puts me again in another, you know, crosshairs. Like, so we're now the government says I can, but then the local government says I can't, and then the the city will say something else. And you're now tiptoeing amongst all these different regulations of who's saying what. In the back of your mind, it's like, well, yeah, what if I do end up violating one of these laws? Who's going to have my back? Who's going to be there to protect me and to protect my patients? Because, um, you know, we see in situations like this that suddenly when things hit the fan, you know, nobody's there. And so I think it just makes it overall more confusing. Again, you can join us as we talk with OBGYNs. Our phone number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. We're talking to them about their expectations and their fears in a post-Roe world. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we're continuing to look at our country post-Roe, and we're going to focus on how some are worried about period tracking apps as a target of concern. But legal experts say the so-called digital dragnet is a much broader issue. Tomorrow, we discuss how digital privacy is at risk and how can you be more diligent about your digital footprint, that conversation tomorrow. Now, today, we're talking with OBGYNs about reproductive health care in a post-Roe world. With us on Zoom, Dr. Kate Pascucci with Connecticut Women OBGYN, Dr. Beverly Gray, Associate Professor at Duke Obstetrics and Gynecology, Dr. Jessian Munoz, maternal fetal medicine specialist who practices in Texas, and Dr. Amanda Callen, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. Chris had a question from Weathersfield. Chris, you're on the show. Uh, Yes, my question has to do with, uh, on all these big constitutional issues, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, with the guns, you know, we have gun lobbyists. And I want to know, do we have an AMA uh, lobbying organization that can weigh in? Chris, thank you for your question when you're thinking about, um, you know, having the ear of lawmakers who are putting forth these policies. Dr. Count, I'm wondering if you can respond to Chris's question. Um, 
Yeah, so I think there are um, there are several organizations that you know are, are I think very passionate in terms of uh, protecting access to reproductive rights, abortion care, the, the full spectrum of of care. Um, the American Medical Association is one of them. Um, the AMA's um, principles of medical ethics don't prohibit a physician from performing an abortion, and the AMA has spoken out um, supporting access to abortion and um, promoting easier access to, to uh, medication abortion. Um, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine um, is very active in this space, um, focusing on access to care for fertility patients, but also you know, promoting access to the full spectrum of reproductive rights. Um, in Connecticut, um, we have the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's a national organization that is um, also active here in Connecticut. I'm the, the past chair of that organization here in Connecticut. And uh, we are also very active um, as as you know, as we sort of talked about, our, our issues are a little bit different than perhaps the issues in Texas, but but these are, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's any less important to, to be active and to speak out. So um, yes, I think our, our national, our local organizations are, are shouting about these issues, but, um, you know, um, the people who are making these laws, A, I think sometimes don't understand the very real and nuanced decision making that goes into you know someone's fertility and reproductive decisions and i think in some cases they do understand and and they are passing these laws anyway um you know i i um i think in many cases states and legislators know exactly what they're doing and exactly the positions that they're putting um providers in and 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 it's an afterthought it's about um, you know, it, it's about controlling these situations and taking these decisions away from patients and providers. Before the break, I had asked Dr. Munoz about um, his career path, uh, given that um, he's fairly new uh, to practicing and with all of uh, what we've just discussed. And I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Beverly Gray, who's with us from North Carolina, you know, how do you think uh, pre-med or med school education or reproductive care might change uh, given the Supreme Court's ruling? So there are a lot of people speculating about what will change. I think the type of education that folks have is probably already very different depending on what state you're in and what type of institution you're you're learning in. Um, I'm a residency director, so one of my um, one of my concerns is how will these limitations impact our ability to train the next generation of providers? So if we go through a period of time where many or most states have very restrictive bans, there will be parts of the country where you won't have doctors who can provide that that skill um, and that care in the second trimester. Um, and Dr. Pescucci was talking about that earlier, that you know, it it is a unique skill set. And so I think if you have restrictive bands, you're going to be training um, a group of of residents that maybe don't have the skill set. Um, I think it may also impact how people make decisions around their medical field of choice. Um, you know, people may have thoughts about, you know, am I going to go into a field where I could be prosecuted for doing the right thing? That may be the case. Um, I, I'm hoping that more than anything, that we will attract very passionate individuals who want to stand up for reproductive health rights in our country. 
Um, but where those folks train will probably be dependent on the laws in different states. So we may miss out on some of the most competitive applicants in North Carolina if our laws change. So those are there are a couple of, of things that that are that I'm thinking about kind of with my residency director hat on. Um, and I'm definitely concerned about the future of our field. And that is concerning. We think about, um, I guess, care deserts, so to speak, if, if certain areas uh, don't have uh, the right specialists to provide that care, Dr. Gray. Absolutely. And then, you know, like Dr. Munoz was talking about earlier, you know, Texas is a huge state and there are probably vast areas where you don't have a provider. Um, in North Carolina, only 91, um, well, only nine counties in our state have an abortion care provider. And so the, the vast majority of counties don't have someone that can care for them. And then if you have a state where you have restrictions and you don't have people trained to care for patients in emergencies, even if we have these, you know, federal regulate regulations that are protecting us, um, if we're, if we don't have the skill to provide that care, then um, it puts patients' lives at risk. Uh, Dr. Pascucci, who's still with us from Connecticut OBGYN, and I had to ask Dr. Gray to talk about, you know, the future of, of med school education. I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are there. I agree. I don't know how the people in those states will continue, will be able to train people appropriately, um, which will become a big problem um, in the future for women seeking care in those states, like if the laws change again in the future, or if people, you know, people don't always train in the, in the state where they end up living. So, I mean, and if there's laws saying that they can't train doctors to that, like I work at a Catholic institution, um, I have privileges at another institution so that I can provide abortion care um, to my patients. Um, and the residents at our facility have opportunities to work with me. They also have opportunities to go to another hospital in New York that has a large family planning program to get the, to get the training that they need if they're interested in that. Um, but I do think that it's something that lacks at our, at the institution where, you know, where I'm affiliated mainly, but I, so I can't even imagine if there's like an entire state that is not training residents, like a state like Texas that has very good programs for medicine. They have, uh, you know, renowned institutions and then they can't train anyone in abortion care. I mean, that it's a big problem. Dr. Callen, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think we are gonna see um, loss of skills and loss of uh, the ability for uh, providers to, to take care of patients in the way that is most appropriate. And I also think that this, you know, this applies not only to abortion care, but to miscarriage care. Um, you know, this, the surgical techniques used for abortion care um, are in many ways the same as those used for miscarriage care. And so if um, people are not gaining those skills, then um, I think people will be less likely to provide good care for someone who has a miscarriage. Um, people will be less able to access the medications used to treat miscarriage, which um, are 
essentially the same as the medications used to um, provide a medication abortion already. You, you see, you know, I can prescribe medication to treat a miscarriage to a patient and that patient might go to a pharmacy and the pharmacist might say, um, I'm not comfortable prescribing this, um, you know, and, and object and make it very difficult for the patient to fill that medication, um, even if it's not for abortion care. Um, and so I, I don't want to I don't want to take away from the very, um, the very real crisis of providing good, appropriate abortion care. I just want to point out that I think it extends even beyond that to, you know, to, to these other consequences as well. Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, Dr. Jesse Munoz has also been with us from, from Texas, the maternal fetal medicine specialist. Dr. Munoz, what are your final thoughts for us uh, here in Connecticut? Um, my final thoughts really are to think about not only today, but the future, you know, as we've said here multiple times, this does affect our current patients, but also those upcoming and, you know, the skills and the way that we care for patients with termination of pregnancy, miscarriage are the same. And this parallel many things, it will affect us in the office, it will affect us on labor and delivery. And, you know, the biggest thing we can do now publicly is make our voices heard, because now is the time. Again, that's Dr. Jesse Munoz. Thank you for your time today on the show. We appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. Also here with us from North Carolina, Dr. Beverly Gray, who's Associate Professor at Duke Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you, Dr. Gray. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to say that, you know, abortion is really common. One in four women will have had an abortion by the time they reach menopause, which means that many listeners on your show today have had an abortion. Many people know or love someone who's had an abortion. And I think until people are faced with an unplanned pregnancy or an unintended pregnancy or an emergency situation with their pregnancy, it's impossible to understand the circumstances that people are facing. And people are the experts of their lives and they deserve the right to make the healthcare decisions that are right for them with the guidance of their healthcare providers. So thank you for covering this very important topic. Thank you, Dr. Gray, and also with us, Dr. Kate Pascucci from Connecticut Women OBGYN and Dr. Amanda Callen, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Yale School of Medicine. We appreciate your time as well. We're out of time. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible and Anya Grandolski. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.